The talk is about understanding the wisdom teachings. For the first 500 years after the Buddha's death, the Buddha was remembered as emptiness. In fragments of stone uh, that have been passed down from that time, he is often represented as an empty seat or a tree with no one beneath it or a pair of footprints or the wheel of Dharma that was set turning. When he was alive, he referred to himself as one thus gone. And it was only until after 500 years after his death, uh, that some Greek settlers were in India and converted to Buddhism. And that's when the first personification of the image of the Buddha was done in the form of the god Apollo. So it's really important for us to understand that what was represented as this being that became fully awake was a tree with no one beneath it, an empty seat, a pair of footprints. Because if we understand that, we understand uh, the direction of the Buddha's teaching, which is wisdom. One of the great opportunities that I have felt when I have gone to Upper Burma, has been to uh, go in several caves that it said that fully enlightened beings were just in and had died recently. And it said that a fully enlightened being leaves no trace. But when I went into these caves, I felt such power of freedom. It's like the taste of the happiness and peace was so palpable. It's the most palpable experience I've ever had. And when I was um, walking in one of these caves, I just started crying because I felt the aspiration of myself to be fully free, deeply mirrored by what had just happened in that cave. So sometimes we forget as we're practicing, you know, that it is possible to be free of suffering and that beings are in that process right now uh, that have accomplished that. We're in the process. It's not something we're doing alone. And it's very sometimes hard work. And I would ask you to really keep going with this and keep the silence. Please keep the silence. It's like the foundation of trust amongst us all. Even if you want to talk, <laughs> if you talk, it will catch someone else and pull them out. It's very disturbing. 
The Buddha said that just as the ocean has only one taste, the taste of salt, so his teaching has only one taste, the taste of liberation. In this mindfulness practice, we're developing a taste for liberation instead of a taste for being lost in confusion. And you can probably grasp that battle, you know, sitting by sitting, walking by walking. You know, do we, do we shift back into the old conditioning of identification with experience? Do we choose a fantasy versus reality? As we practice and the taste for the truth develops, our heart becomes more light and certain because the heart is more disentangled from experience itself. It's more disenchanted. Developing non-attachment is realizing that everything that takes birth passes away, whether it's a breath, a sound, a tree, a thought, a person, a gecko. Because life is changing, we're vulnerable. We never know what's going to happen. Because we never know what's going to happen, experience is unreliable. If we were counting on sitting last night at the late night sitting, you know, the odds were that it was going to happen. You know, generally, how many times since 1976 has the late night sit not happened? Probably never. It was certainly the shortest sitting I've ever done in this hall. You know, it was just and we never know. So because of change, because experience can't be satisfactory ultimately because it's changing, there's a third characteristic of existence, which is anatta, that no matter how closely and hard we look at experience, we can't find a durable, solid, separate self. Sometimes I think that the process of seeing clearly and becoming disentangled from experience scares us because we might be afraid that we won't be the same if we let go. But we won't be the same anyway. (laughs) You know, we keep changing anyway, and yet there's this fear about letting go. There's a book that I've read in the last few years about um, a man that inherited a family farm in California, and it's called Epitaph for a Peach. He inherited a peach orchard, and these peaches are very juicy, uh, an ancient variety, and these peaches uh, aren't that beloved by big grocery store owners that want peaches to be hard and green and not get juicy all over the counters and uh, deteriorate quickly. So his special, incredibly juicy 
sweet peaches uh, were harder and harder to find a market for. And at the same time as this was happening to him, he decided to try to go organic. Uh, and it was written as a journal. So one sees him really wanting to go organic, but also, you know, the fungus and the insects start, start marching into his um, big orchard. And he has to face being willing to lose everything. It's like he really experiences dukkha. You know, you never know what's going to happen. And at a certain point, he writes, chaos defines my farm. Have you felt that yet on the retreat? (laughs) We start to let go of control, let things be. So if you described a day of sitting to someone outside of here and they asked you what happened, Well, there was sleepiness. <coughs> that was really hard. I mean, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't. <laughs> and then there was restlessness, you know, and then there was lunch. <laughs> I remember one time my father called me unpredictably in the middle of a three-month retreat. And luckily, he likes to talk a lot, you know, so I didn't have to really talk much. Uh, But I kept thinking, what if he asked me what I've been doing, you know? (laughs) So if we want to get a little more precise about what happened, maybe we'll say, well, there is the wanting mind, or anger, or doubt, or restlessness maybe some broken-heartedness, lethargy, boredom. So we're learning to listen to how life is rather than dominate it. And switching from oppressing reality with our ideas about it and concepts about it versus just listening. Um, This listening leads to trust. The dominance leads to more aversion and attachment. We're paying attention to what we would call ordinary. There's sounds, breaths, thoughts, eating. We're paying attention to life with the intention to understand. And if we aren't mindful, life loses its meaning very quickly, because we're running on concept, which is conditioning, and we can go asleep at the wheel. And when we're asleep at the wheel, life is very flat. It seems repetitive and boring. If we're asleep at the wheel, life is the same old thing again and again, and it's never enough, and it's never quite good enough and we're never quite good enough, and the person that we're closest to isn't good enough, the strangers aren't good enough. As we become (coughs) mindful, we start to see that we're not changing life in any way. We're not trying to change experience. 
to be happy. And this is what's so radical about the teachings. So what's being said is that each moment of life paid attention to or attended to with mindfulness is complete. That instead of it not being good enough, it's probably more than enough that we become good enough, the world becomes good enough, because each moment will be sufficient, just enough. Right after the Buddha's enlightenment, he said, how many lives, how many rounds of rebirth have I experienced without finding the builder of this house. Now I see you, O builder. All your rafters are broken. Your ridgepole is shattered. Never again need you build a house for me. My mind has gone beyond the transitory, the conditioned, and has achieved the extinction of craving. You know, this is very light, peaceful, imperturbable. The extinction of craving means that we live a life in harmony with nature. We're liberated from clinging. No more struggle. No more separate house. The separate house is me or I or mine. You know, that identification with being a separate self. The extinction of craving means the end of that stressful, self-centered life. So it means that we aren't identified with a craving for existence. We're not identified with a craving for non-existence. So we're not identified with wanting. We're not identified with not wanting. Our minds going beyond the transitory means a mind of peace. How do we do this? It's through understanding experience itself. So when we see a moment of experience clearly, we'll understand the truth of things. And in that moment, we understand that that moment can be a moment when we're eating oatmeal, when we're eating a chocolate chip cookie, when we're noticing the movement of the breath, when we're noticing boredom or anger. Liberation can happen no matter what moment of experience is happening if we're seeing clearly. And so this understanding is closer to us than our skin, our blood, our bones. How do we understand experience itself? Well, we start by being interested in how identification happens. How does this perception of being separate happen? Any time that we think that I am my body, that's a misperception. Anytime we think, I am my heart, or I am my emotions, or I am my thoughts, or I am my mind, 
this is being imprisoned by the relative level of existence. So I'd like to explain a little bit more about the relative level of existence and to see it as a, as a kind of floor on an elevator. In a sase, we say that the relative level of existence is the top floor, the tenth floor, and that the absolute level of existence is the first floor. Um, these are all, all these floors are accessible in any moment. So by saying that the relative level of concept is just one layer of reality, it doesn't mean that we annihilate it by understanding another layer of reality. But this is our fear. It's like we say, well, if we're going to go from thinking that this is my hand, or this is Michelle, if we try to see this from another layer of reality, we think that that means we're annihilating my hand or Michelle. But it's just shifting perception and understanding. Ironically, the human journey uh, encompasses many, many layers of reality. So you could say that the infant, you know, might be starting on the zero floor (laughs) for a moment of consciousness. And then as we become infants into childhood, we're meant to really um, get deeply involved with the relative level of reality. It's very important for us to understand that this is a rug and this is a clock. What time is it? You know, this is a bell. Very important. If you've had children or been around children, you know how important that sense of security is. It's how we function. Uh, And when we can't function well, it's a problem for us. Some people think that we're talking about trying to eradicate the thinking or the conceptual level, and that's not what we're doing. You know, the human being has developed a great capacity for great thinking, and it's wonderful. But then as we grow older, we get imprisoned by that, and life becomes flat and repetitive, frustrating and boring, because we're not exploring. And we're lost in that world of concept. Oh yeah, that's a bell. So we think that this is a bell so surely. It's like we don't know that there's any other experience but that word. And so to understand that we can know the difference There's a huge difference between the word bell and the direct experience. This is what we're doing. We're trying to wake up. We're trying to get free of the concept so that we can be with present time awareness because the word bell comes from the past. And then if we really get lost in the conceptual world, we think we know. 
And we start to think we know everything. One of the dangers of being a human. We get so arrogant. We get so caught in time. One of the great things that can happen to us is a thirst for truth, is to kind of peck out of the shell of the conceptual world. So it's important to understand in a little more detail what happens to us with this conceptual world and relative level of reality, because it doesn't protect us that well. You know, so if we don't understand change, if we don't understand that life is a stream of unpleasant, pleasant, neutral feelings, which are mental, associated with each moment of consciousness, if we don't understand the profoundity of that change, then we won't understand our defense system. So the defense system, again, is something that we protect ourselves with until we can develop mindfulness metta. So anytime something unpleasant surfaces and we're not mindful of it, we push it away or pull away. That's the identification with the experience as something that isn't me and I don't want it. That's how we protect ourselves. Or with pleasure. Maybe there was a sitting, maybe it was five sittings ago, or maybe it was our last retreat that was so great. You know, how easily we get attached to it. It's, I want it. It's our defense system. It becomes who we are. And it's so painful. So the aversion and the attachment cover our vulnerability. It's like it protects us from the vulnerability of not knowing what's going to happen moment by moment. In meditation, one metaphor of liberation is a flower opening. And so as we develop mindfulness and loving kindness and compassion, as we have more of a protection from those, we have more equanimity with the ups and downs of life, and we start to open to the range, even, say, with physical sensations. We've been talking about that range from softness to hardness or maybe the range from low energy to high energy. And we, more and more of our experience becomes acceptable. We can connect more because we're protected by mindfulness. What happens for us as we start to understand this is we start wanting to rip the petals of the flower open. And this is a great time of year to be practicing here because of the peonies, the iris, all the flower buds, it's like you can see really clearly that if you rip those petals open, the flower is going to die. <laughs> or, you know, it's just not going to be a happy flower. <laughs> we do that every day of the retreat. You know, aversion and attachment will come up, some kind of fear, sometimes it's deep and we don't want it, and we attack it, rather than trying to understand, you know, what is this? What's happening right now? 
So if we start rejecting our defense system, if we start pulling the petals open, our system doesn't trust us. And an example of this would be, you know, okay, Michelle wants to rip the petals open, and my system will go, uh-oh, <laughs> she's about <laughs> to rip the petals open. I'm going to close up a little tighter. Now that's what happens. It's like, why should our systems trust us? unless we start d- replacing the defense with mindfulness. So what I'm trying to say <laughs> is it's a gradual process. If you watch the flowers open, they don't just rip open. It's a gradual process. And it's a process of becoming vulnerable and open to storms, like last night, to darkness, how dark it gets and light, rain, wind. So that's the process we're doing. We're opening to all of life. And it's so much, (laughs) you know, it's so interesting to see that we only want to open to what we want to open. We like to open to the good stuff, not the unpleasant part or the painful. When I left Burma this time, there's a Sayadaw that comes to see me when I'm there. And he was a forest monk by himself for 20 years with no shelter, no roof covering, 20 years in the forest. And he just said, I hope you come to the place of no suffering. That's what this is about. It's that simple. But we have to be in touch with our suffering to come to the place of no suffering. We need to be motivated. And the motivation will hopefully come more and more out of compassion for ourselves. If you're willing to experience the suffering of anger and you tune into the pain of it, you'll be motivated to be mindful of it. And that search for understanding and peace and the end of the struggle will deepen. I've had a student for quite a number of years who has never had the opportunity to come to a retreat like this. And he meditates every day. He has a busy life with many children. And for me, it's been really inspiring to see how dedicated, dedicated he is at his spiritual practice daily. And for years, he's come to interviews with me over time. And he's never talked about his work. So I never knew what he did. And recently, he came in for an interview and he needed to talk about his work. So he said (laughs) he said he was a forensic psychiatrist and I didn't know what that was. Um, So he I said well what happened today? And he said well I just came from my first interview with a mass murderer and he was shaken and he said this is the first time I've ever gotten so shaken and this is what he does. He goes around the country. He's one of the top 
forensic psychiatrist when there's been a mass murder. So he said that of this that this day, of all the people he'd ever worked with, uh, that this person was difficult. And I said, well, what happened? And he said, well, what I have to do is very similar to what you do with people, <laughs> which is to ask, you know, in great detail, well, what, what happened when you were lifting your leg? What happened when you were moving? What happened when you placed the foot? But he has to ask it in such deep detail of what happened <laughs> when you were looking at the person? What happened when you lifted the gun? Um, and over and over in greater and greater detail. And he said that this person responded each time just like he was going into a grocery store and choosing an apple or paying for groceries. It was like there was no remorse. There was no sense of anything painful. And it was quite disturbing for him on two levels. And the reason he came to me that day is because he couldn't feel any compassion. And I thought that was so incredible, you know, just, just to, to come to see me because he couldn't feel compassion. You know, and that's hard. It's hard to feel compassion in these situations. And um, he was quite shaken because of his own internal ability to not open to this being, to the suffering. But also, he was also shaken because this man wasn't shaken. We're meant to get shaken by this practice. If you get through a day of practice without being a little disturbed (laughs) by your own mind, you know, something's a little off. Yeah. If you're not a little surprised at the amount of attachment or aversion that appears, something might be a little off. Because being able to see that aversion and attachment is what leads us to the willingness to do the practice, to see more clearly. If we see clearly, we start to see that things aren't what they appear to be. If we have some balance of concentration and mindfulness and have some continuity, we go through a dissolving process. What is it that gets dissolved? We dissolve the misperception of reality. We dissolve wrong view. So we dissolve being imprisoned in the conceptual level of reality. You know, this is huge. This is worth every knee pain. This is worth every bit of uncomfortability that you might go through. Because you're seeing how we glue moments together and make concepts and identify. So knowing that this is a clock or that that's a light, or that that's a fan. If we get lost in that, we miss the direct experience. And we can see how off we can get if we're planning 
I'm going to go here after this retreat. I'm going to go there after this retreat. I'm going to go back to this job. I'm going to go back to this friend, this person. All of that is trying to get a sense of security in the future. It's a sense of identification with knowing or planning. And while getting lost in that over and over, we miss the fear of facing the present moment, just as it is. A wanderer asked the Buddha, how is it, Venerable Gautama, does the self exist? How is it, does the self exist? And the Buddha remained silent. So then he asked, then how is it, does the self not exist? And the Buddha again remained silent. And the wanderer got, off, got up and left. And then the Buddha turned to his attendant, Ananda, and said, if I had answered, the self exists, that would have encouraged eternalism. And if I had answered, the self does not exist, that would have encouraged nihilism. Oh, we have to face ambiguity, the middle path. We have to face that the Buddha taught the middle way of insight. Everything exists is one extreme. Nothing exists is the other extreme. And the truth is in the middle way. So we're saying that a person isn't endowed with some kind of permanent identity. But we're also saying that a person isn't total illusion. That we make moral choices that have consequences. And that ambiguity can be hard for us. When the Buddha said, Ehipasiko, come and see for yourself. Every moment that you look at the breath, a sound, the body, the stepping, eating, whatever it is, you're meant to be exploring, not believing anything. Because if you believe something, you won't see it for what it is you'll overlay the experience with a concept. We can assure you <laughs> that there's nothing to lose. You know, there's only the fear of loss. You know, we might be afraid that we'll lose some idea about ourselves or who others are. But literally, we only lose confusion. We only use, lose ignorance or delusion. So by facing insecurity, you can explore. And that's so exciting. It's like to have this time is so rare as a human, to have this support to just explore, to not believe anything. Sometimes I think that we fear annihilation. And yet with practice, Surely we see that life goes on <laughs> and on. It's like with realization, the eye will still receive forms. The ear will still receive sounds. And the mind still receives thoughts. 
We're not getting rid of anything with realization. But we start to see that we don't have to grasp at them for security. There's a voluntary letting go. And we start to see that nothing's worth being attached to. If you see your leg clearly, you'll see that no one's worth being attached to. You know, this is what it's all about, as we start not clinging to the impossible. If you see experience clearly, you wouldn't cling to it, because it's impossible to cling to it. What are we clinging to when we cling to a person? The breath? A thought? Empathy? Hair? A moment of sight? It's so interesting when you break it down into moments. Speaking of breaking it down into moments, mostly we're lost in our own movie. You know, just think about the great movie that played today. You were the star. And it's going to play tomorrow. <laughs> In fact, it's going to play again the next day. <laughs> and when you think about going into a movie theater, what we usually do is sit down in the seat, look at the screen, somebody turns the projector on, and it runs at a certain speed, and we get lost in the drama. Yes? And that's what we do, day after day after day. And in the mindfulness practice, we're saying, okay, you have some time here to explore how the movie is played. So come in and sit and walk and look at the screen. See how you get identified with the storyline, each thought. That's looking at the screen. But then we say, turn around and look at the projector. Not only that, get closer and look at the film. And if you look at the film of a movie, it's actually one mind moment by next mind moment. It's frame by frame. It's one picture. It's one moment is complete in and of itself. And it's over. Another moment. And those frames are glued together, and they're played at a certain speed, and that's the movie. And that's our movie. Seeing, hearing, touching, tasting, smelling, thinking, frame by frame by frame. And we glue it together, and we get a separate self. (laughs) 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 And then we glue all you guys together, and we get all these separate selves. And the birds are doing it. The snakes are doing it. We're all doing this. The ants are doing it. Now, we don't have to reject anything. We don't have to annihilate that level of reality. But if we get imprisoned by it, we suffer tremendously. We don't see the truth. We cling at air element, earth element, fire element, water element.
So what we give a name to or a concept to is so limited. When you're walking and you think that I am walking and this is my leg, it's very limited. But if we think that what we experience in a step is a profoundly insubstantial flux of causality, that's getting closer to the truth. (laughs) So this isn't to say that everything is imaginary and that we don't exist. And we want to go to one side or the other. We want to go to eternalism or nihilism. And can we have the courage to not say it's this or it's that, but just to be in the moment just as it is. That makes it alive, dynamic, unknown. It's that ever-changing result of different myriad conditions. So we see, ultimately, that freedom is a cessation of clinging to the impossible. That's liberation. One of the best teachers, I think, is the New England weather for not identifying with experience. I was teaching in New Mexico last summer, up above 9,000 feet. It was so rainy. It was rainy for weeks before we got there. And up at this place, it's a wilderness area, uh, the dirt road, when it rains, gets muckier and muckier and very slippery. It amazes me <laughs> how slippery it gets. And so instead of walking on the paths or the road, we have to hold on to trees as we go from where we are t- you know, staying, Steve and I, to the meditation hall. It's quite far from where we stay to the meditation hall. One night, it was so dark, and it just poured and poured and poured and poured. Uh, And most people are in tents. So if you just think about last night, if you had to go out to a tent after the talk, would you have come back to the late night sitting? (laughs) Well, that night, there was about one person (laughs) in the hall for the late night sitting, because Everyone had kind of had it with the weather. So I slept all the way to this meditation hall, and one person's in the hall. (laughs) And it was really hard to get there, never mind back. And there's lightning and thunder, and it's pouring. Um, So I headed back to my place, and my flashlight went out. And it was such dukkha. I can't tell you. It was thick mud, and I'm holding onto trees, and I can't see. And all I could think of... I want to go home. (laughs) I want to go home. I don't like it here. You know, and I was counting the days, and it's like, oh, it just seemed permanent, you know? And I didn't think I could find a way back, and it was filthy, and there's no water, and it was a great night. (laughs) The next night, I mean, 24 hours later, The stars were out. The road had dried up enough to kind of walk along the corner. Um, It was beautiful. 
I saw some shooting stars as I was walking back to the cabin, and I had the total opposite thought. It's like, how could I figure out to stay longer? You know, and I was rearranging in my mind my whole schedule. Like, <laughs> how many times have you done that? T- today. <laughs> yeah? How many times have you wanted to go home? Because experience wasn't good enough, or it was awful, it was terrible. Or maybe it was just not bad. But we identify with the experience as me, or I, or mine. And we count the days. And then, lo and behold, we might have, five minutes later, we might see a beautiful bird. Or we might get an intuitive sense of taking a step and feeling free in that moment. Maybe a glimpse of freedom. No aversion, no attachment. Ah, we understand. I wonder if I can get in the three-month retreat. <laughs> you know, it's just, we identify with the experience. And we suffer. We cling to the impossible. The mind can be so fickle. One way that I try to start a day is to remember that it's just enough. And usually I notice that I get more than enough teachings in a day if I start the day that way. When the Buddha taught the monks and nuns to beg for food, and he never stopped begging for food, You know, it was a way of life. Uh, And as householders, we don't always get the immediate teaching of taking what's given to us by receiving food in a begging bowl. But we get a sense of that on a retreat where we're dependent for the food and we receive what's given. Uh, But there's a deep teaching in that. It's like if we relate to a breath as just enough, and we receive it fully, it will be sufficient. If we, re- if we relate to anger as just enough, as a teaching, it will be sufficient. But how many times do we get what's in the begging bowl and we throw it out? You know, it's like, <laughs> I'm not going to eat that. You know, I'm not going to receive this as a teaching. But if you look at the course of a day, you'll probably see that you've had plenty. You've thrown out a lot of teachings. But you'll probably get just enough for that day. So this attitude change of life not being good enough, this stream of dissatisfaction, because we're identifying with experience, can shift when we shift the attitude to it being just enough. When we shift to each moment being just enough, then our home becomes present time awareness. And we realize that the past is just a thought, that the future is just a thought, 
and that the only thing we really have is now, and that that's very fleeting and wild, and that's what makes life alive. Delicate to grasp. The last thing I wanted to mention in relationship to each moment being just enough is especially in the nothing's happening times. You know, we often judge a lot of our experience on the retreat is it not being good enough because we think nothing's happening. I've learned so much about identification and liberation from those times. It's like it's because we're judging it as not good enough (laughs) that we don't receive any teaching from it. But I saw over time that when I would have a nothing happening time, and I'd see that as a judgment, if I look closely, I'd see fear. And I'd see that I was afraid that nothing was happening, and that I was making an interpretation about myself and my practice. So as I started to make space for that time, I'd see that I was afraid that I was failing at the practice, or that I was a failure at life. And if I looked more closely, I'd see that I was afraid I was going to get annihilated by that lack of intensity, that it meant that I didn't exist. And there were times, actually over some years, in going to see Sayadaw Upandita every day during retreats for interviews, that the hardest times for me was when he treated me neutrally. It's like I looked forward to him being difficult with me rather than neutral. And that started to teach me about this, that when he was neutral, I would feel erased. And there would be that terror of um, the fear. It was like being erased was unacceptable. But if I look closely, it was all from making an interpretation about neutrality, and that my experience wasn't good enough, because I thought nothing was happening. So if you're having times like that, where you, you judge, oh, how long is this going to go on? Nothing's happening. I would really encourage you to look a little more closely at the interpretation you're making about the experience. Because I've found some of the deepest liberation for myself in practice around the neutral times. So sometimes we get nothing's happening in our begging bowl, but we don't eat it. You know, we throw it out. And I found that over time it was some of the best food on the retreat. The Dalai Lama said that uh, all spiritual practices, all spiritual practices are impeded or blocked without the awareness of death. You know, bringing in that sense of 
spiritual urgency to our practice, that we never know what's going to happen, really means that we never know what's going to happen. And I would encourage you to use your time here wisely. That doesn't mean that you freak out and you step on the gas and, you know, go too much. But it means that you really take this time to do the best you can to really try to understand what is suffering, what is happiness, what is liberation, what is identification. When Ramdas's teacher Maharaji died, the day he died, he disappeared from the ashram in the morning and got on a train and died later that day. And when he left the ashram, he said to somebody, all happy, I'm getting out of central prison forever. And when Ramana Maharshi died, just before he died, and his devotees were around him, said, I'm going to die. He said, where could I possibly go? When I was in the cave, in this place where an arhat had just died, this time when I was in Burma, the vibe was so powerful. It's like the vibe of freedom, of liberation, of peace and happiness was so strong. We're not getting rid of anything to be liberated. We're just liberating ourselves from the suffering of aversion and attachment. So let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.